Thanks for joining me for another episode of Psyche of Sales. As always, Johnny Lee is my name, CEO and founder of Enable IQ, and we're lucky enough to have Mike Wilson. Mike Wilson has been a client of mine for a number of years, but someone I look up to. Mike's one of the best presenters that I've ever spoken to. He has an Order of Australia medal, and he's the CEO of the charity, JDRF Australia, who is changing the way the world faces type one diabetes. We explore in great depth what it takes to really lead a group of people through change. We talk about the power of giving feedback, but in some cases how it's more important to receive feedback. And finally, he's one of the best presenters that I've ever seen. So we talk about the need of preparing effectively, but how to really own that room and own the audience. Please enjoy, and if you like it, please like it, share it, rate it, so we can get Psyche of Sales and our message to as many people as we can. So why don't we start at the beginning and, and could you tell us a bit about the role that you're in today and then the background? So my current job involves being CEO of JDRF Australia, which is a medical research focused nonprofit trying to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. And doing that involves investing in research, influencing policy, looking at commercial partnerships and making sure good science gets into the hearts and lives of people who need it. And I also have a, another role as the lead of a global project for JDRF, where we're trying to make sure that more of the world that doesn't have access to first world health systems, but has challenges like type 1 diabetes, are able to benefit from some of the breakthroughs that most of us take for granted. So it's a nice, diverse role with the, both domestic and international responsibilities. And how long have you been doing that for? I'm uh, 16 years into a three-year contract. So, uh, I'm fortunate to have found a job that is a passion and a profession and the board still wants me and I still want to do it and there's still st still things that need to be done that haven't yet been done. So I've been, I've been in this role for a while, although if I look back at it, it's been a very different job every three or four years. It's absolutely not the role as it started being and it's still changing every day now. It's interesting and I, and I want to come back to that and so don't let me forget, which I, I sometimes do, of how you actually got started into this. But I know you and I have had a conversation about this before, about that idea of purpose. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our clients can lose what they got into it for and potentially not evolve themselves or the role itself. And, and did you always have that purpose? I think I found it more in this role than I'd expected. And I think I've learned the difference in this role between challenge and purpose. I've had roles where I've been challenged and inspired, I've been tested and I've been developed and that was more in the commercial environment, my background in management consulting and the project-related challenges. There's a difference when you also have purpose on top of challenge because I think what that brings you does not replace the need for a role where you are appropriately skilled and you develop and grow and learn over time. But if you can add that on top of a job that has those elements, it's a pretty powerful mix and one I wouldn't want to give away now. Do you ever have people who have those conversations with you? Like have you helped others find a purpose before? I, I hope so, um, but I think the organisation and its collective commitment provides an environment in which people can each find their purpose um, in our case, and I think that's the case with many other organisations. I think it's harder to find your individual purpose in a work environment outside of an organisational context that's going to be suitable for it, and I am wary of people who are well-meaning who come and say, I want to join the nonprofit sector because I just need to give back. It's got to be more than that. It's still got to be a job. It's still got to be a challenge and an opportunity you rise to as well as a sector-focused commitment. And I think that's probably what surprised me most. And I've been fortunate enough for everybody watching to be able to work with your organisation for, for the last probably 12 months or so. And not surprised of people's commitment to it, 
but they really are driven and they are driven to get to that result, driven to improve, driven to get better. And it's, it's, it's quite insightful to see. Hopefully that's a cultural element of our organisation, that sense of strive, you know, that passion plus professionalism. Because to me, the term non-profit to me should not describe a management style. It purely describes a financial outcome. We should be taking advantage of all the management tools and techniques. We should be managing human capital, rewarding people, managing our, our performance, um, look, setting ourselves up for success using technology, just as any good small distributed business does. And that's why we work with you guys. You know, the skills you have that are commonly applied in commercial environments are equally relevant in the nonprofit world. And we want to have the best of capabilities from wherever they come. Yeah, that's great. Look, I'm getting a bit excited and could jump ahead and just go down this path. But I, I am keen to go back and sort of work out what did you do previous to this and also understand how you got into it in the first place. Sure. So I've always had a passion and an interest for science and business. Um, now, retrospectively, I can draw a really nice, clear line as to how I've ended up here from where I came from. It was absolutely not the case. Um, I happened to study science and economics at university, which was an unusual mix at the time because they were the things I happened to enjoy. Um, I then lurched into a couple of years of backpacking, which I only mentioned because I think it's a great way to round out yourselves and give you a sense of the world is much bigger than your backyard and you can't just expect to behave the way you want and have an enjoyable experience with people who don't know you or think of you other than what they see of you when they meet you around a table. You don't come with any predispositions or any, or any, or any entitlements. Uh, and then I joined Accenture as a management consultant. Uh, and that was a wonderful learning ground for me. Um, it was an absolute fast start education of the best type of everything that has stood me in good stead. Uh, but then after a while, I realised that as much as I could analyse and strategize and framework eyes till the cows came home and point at where a business should go, I wasn't sure deep down I could get a group of disparate people in a room and help them get the business there. And that's where I wanted to shift out of that consulting world into a more line management role, probably accidentally into the nonprofit sector to start with, because I was looking more to leave consulting than where I was wanting to go. Um, happened to find a role in the nonprofit sector with the Smith family. And really that began my journey of both personal growth and professional growth running in parallel with a theme of passion throughout them. So I still feel like I have that professional development available to me, but it's within a, a context that also has that person and passion commitment that led me after a few years to JDRF. Um, and JDRF at the stage was a, was a, a smaller fundraising focused business. And we've been through a lot of iterations and, and, and changes since then to become the business we are today. So when you joined the Smith family, what did you join as? I joined as what was a strategic relationships manager. So effectively building connections between the Smith family and commercial organisations who are looking to have a, a non-profit impact. So we built a partnership with Microsoft and got Bill Gates out here. We built a partnership with Cisco Systems and won a Prime Minister's Award um, purely because I understood a little bit about how the commercial organisations thought and what they valued and we could find something that worked for both partners. And it moved from being a cap in hand um, give us money because we do good stuff to we understand a bit more of your strategy and business drivers, a bit more of your employment context and value proposition. Why don't we do this with you? Because that'll do this for our mission and it'll do this for your strategy. And it's a much more sustainable type of partnership than when it works both ways. So were you taught how to do that or is that something that came quite innately to you? Not innately. I think the best thing was it was a new role and there was no historical incumbent. Uh, and so it was a clean sheet of paper and it was also an emerging field at the time where the idea of how a business works in the community was moving out of the sponsorship function into a C-suite discussion 
on the way to being a board and potentially license to operate type conversation. So there's a bit more thirst and interest on the commercial side for organisations in the non-profit sector that thought a bit differently. But no, it was a clean sheet of paper and it was a lot of what the heck moments to work out what needed to be done, which actually strips it back to the, the more simple questions of what works for both parties if you're building a partnership. It yep. actually made it easier, not harder, having a clean sheet of paper, I think, in hindsight. Yeah, and there is often in large organisations, and a lot of our clients are large organisations, that there's so much legacy and there's so many systems and there's so many ways of, well, this is the way we've done it before. It's really challenging for them to shift and change and, as you said, have that blank sheet of paper. Uh, I sometimes wonder how you can create more blank sheets of paper for people that start in roles where there's a long-term incumbency because it immediately diminishes 50% of their experience they would otherwise bring to the table when they think it's not the way we do things. Whereas there's no point adding a person to an organisation if you don't give them a chance to express their own experience in your own context. You know, it, it reminds me of the first time or maybe the second time we met and we, we had a session and we had a program that we were going to launch within the your business and you drove that conversation of almost blank sheet of paper of does it have to look like this? And I know that if we just achieve this, we'd be really happy. And so why don't we start there? And, and we built it all around that. And, and that's what we've been working on since. I think so. And I think to your credit, you let us have that conversation. I think there's a little bit of a, of a need also in a leadership position to make sure you repeatedly show people that you're not protective of the, circ the situations you've often built. But most of our current operating practices I've had an influence on and if I can't be shown as willing to break them down, others are going to be much less willing to do so. Yeah, look, at, and, and for those, again, that are watching, I hopefully don't have to provide this context, but if you're a leader of people, a sales leader, please be watching this and, and introspective, looking at your business and how you can create those blank sheets. And Because, again, if we're trying to create high performance and we're trying to create excellence, it's challenging if we're only doing it based on what we've already done. Yeah, I think the more we expect the same activities to achieve different outcomes, the more we start looking like that definition of insanity that everyone knows. Yes. Um, but it's easy to say that and harder to create an environment where not only are people prepared to give you the benefit of their different thinking, but as an organisation, you're prepared to give them a chance to implement it. Because that most often doesn't lead to a decision by one individual. It has to be the people and stakeholders around them that let that role succeed, that all have to change. But the way to me that that works is not project by project or person by person, it's cultural. If you have the cultural and value set that allow you to be able to change, you won't have to then adjust for every program setting to allow to do it. It's because it's what you just do. It's who you are. Yeah, I love that. And so you went from a management consultant to a salesperson, in essence, a relationship manager and, and building those relationships. Um, please don't take this rudely, but I've met a number of management consultants and there's some great yeah. ones out there who are great communicators, but there's also a number that, that selling is not in their DNA and they're often not taught that. And we've been brought into some pretty major management consultants to teach them how to sell. And I, I look yeah. around at the thousands of people there thinking, surely someone here knows how to sort of teach this internally. So how did you make that shift or, or how did you really understand how to find a need and that sort of mutual win for both yourself and the client? Look, and your point about consultants is right. So just as much as I've spent the rest of my career applying what I've learned, I've spent as much of my career trying to unlearn the things that don't translate well from a consulting environment. And it's those latter things that can be a real impediment to being a, to, to being a, a leader of a different nature and a different type of business. Um, the biggest influences for me in making that progression were feedback and failure. Um, first of all, 
feedback. And to me, feedback is a, is a, a four-dimensional thing. It's not, if I say to you the word, I'm going to give you some feedback, you should not immediately be fearful. You should not know whether I'm going to give you positive feedback or, or constructive because I do both evenly if it's a good, if it's a good relationship. Yep. And similarly, that should be matched by you giving me feedback that is both positive and constructive. So it's two ways and it's, and it's two dimensions. That often doesn't happen. And particularly in a leadership position, unless you make yourself obviously open to feedback and make it part of a regular dialogue, you don't get the benefit of what people tell you unless it's really bad and often not from within your team. You only get things that are negative and you only get things that are from peers or superiors. And you miss a whole part of the organisation you never learn from. And I remember a moment a number of years ago where a person who reported to a person who reported to a person who reported to me came into my office and said, Mike, I just need to give you some feedback. I said, please. And I said, you just need to know you did this thing. I don't think you meant it to have this effect, but it had this really bad effect. I just wanted you to know that. And I thought that was absolute gold. Yeah. That was a sign that there was a willingness for a, a person to give me feedback that was very valuable to me. Otherwise, we would have lost it in the organisation. So trying to be open you know, and trying to always gather input from people who can give me and then occasionally the big failures you know they're the things that really hurt I don't like them I'd much rather learn from someone else's scar tissue than create my own but it doesn't always happen that way uh, when it does happen you have a lot to do a lot to learn from reflecting on it and, and trying to uh, unpick how you ended up in that position and what you've learned from it there's a podcast I listen to and they speak to entrepreneurs that have built big businesses and they often refer to how luck plays a role and they talk about failure mm. and this, this sort of new wave where people say, I'll oh, bring me failure. I love failure because that's how I grow. <laughs> and there was a couple of built businesses that are very successful. And they said, uh, you failed a number of times on the way. Do you, did you love that failure? And they said, no, it, it, excuse the language. We said, it sucked. I hated it <laughs> because if I had the choice, I wouldn't have failed. Yeah. But I also wouldn't have what I have today if it wasn't for that failure. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, you know, the feedback's important. And I think, the intent behind the feedback's really important as well. But we're working with some quite large organisations at the moment doing transformations. And one of the biggest challenges we've got is that people don't want to role play. And the reason they don't want to role play is their experience in role play is they get told how they're doing everything wrong and everything badly. Yeah. And you've got executives that are quite senior who are good at what they do. They yeah. meet and exceed target every year, yet they get told all the things they're doing wrong. And I'm reading a lot at the moment about this idea of positive feedback, and we've always been a big believer in it, but now the science behind how it makes an impact. And mm. so there was a, a coach in the States and it, it talks about who coached the Dallas Cowboys for 27 straight years, who didn't show anything negative in the video sessions, who only mm. showed what they did well. And he said that culturally the shift that they had internally is that people wanted to do more well. Yeah. And they had total confidence in what they could see themselves doing well. So it allowed them to, to lock in what they already do well and then continue to extend and get better. Uh, yeah. It then goes on to talk about that you do still need to correct people who are doing things wrong and, and, and incorrectly. That, that's critical too. But I think it's that positive feedback is something that's often left out because we want to be brave leaders and brave leaders give brave feedback. Uh, but brave feedback can also be positive in making sure that people double down on the things they do well. Exactly. It's that link to that strength-based development type discussion in a, in a human resources context where you don't just have the development plan that these are the three things you're not really very good at, we want you to get better at. Let's, let's start with the things you're really good at that you can be an organisational leader in, you can be a champion for internal growth, you can see yourself becoming a technical expert in these areas. That's fantastic. I, I do think that um, critical feedback is an absolute gift that you should embrace. Um, I think too often people's first response is to block 
or to deny um, yeah. either either externally and, and a pushback or internally to shut it out. Uh, and it really is something that is often not given. And if someone's taking the time to give you critique, um, take advantage of it. Don't have to agree with it, but take advantage of it. Otherwise, you're missing out on a chance to learn. Yeah. And and I can say firsthand within your organisation that it is taken well. Like I, I worked with your team a few weeks ago and each of them came with something that they'd been working on. Yeah. And it was quite great for me to be able to see. And it's quite rewarding when you're working with a team that can actually say, we talked about this, I've worked on it, and now I'm trying to implement this. And they're talking about how to improve that next stage. And, and so it's a, it's a great trait if you can get into that habit of wanting to get better, wanting to improve all the time. Yeah, agree, agree. So you then moved to JDRF Australia. Yes. Did you start in the role you're in today? I started in the role I'm in today in terms of title. Yep. I, would, I would not come within a bull's roar of getting this job now as I was then. Okay. because the job has changed so dramatically uh, in a way which I'm really grateful for because the board has allowed the organisation to grow and me to grow with it. Um, when I started, it was a predominantly fundraising-focused organisation looking at how it could increase its impact potentially by getting into different types of relationships and influence, including governments. We've now built um, a government relations team that has six elections in a row of commitments made to type 1 diabetes. We've built a research management uh, function which has managed over $100 million of research. Uh, we've built some international partnerships and we've built some significant philanthropic activities. Uh, so, yes, the short answer is yes, I started in this job, but the longer answer is no, this job is completely different now. <laughs> I like hearing that. And to get from where it was to where it is now, yep. what's changed and what have you had to do to be able to shift certain stakeholders to allow it to do that? So I think when I started, I thought my job was about fixing the business, making sure it was effective in the construct that it was operating in. And that took a, a little while, took a couple of years. Then I started to shift to the idea of growth and how do we get this to be a more functional and a successful operation. And about six or seven years in, I think, was the big switch, which was this is not about how our business runs. This is about how we fit into a system of organisations that if they don't work effectively together, the person at the end of that system is the patient doesn't benefit. We can do everything we want at one end and just hope that everyone else does their job and worry why it doesn't happen. Or we can start to understand the motivations, the information asymmetries, the challenges, the blockages that exist across this entire network of businesses and play a role where we can most effectively act where others don't. That's been a really big shift for me in thinking of us as a catalyst and an enabler of a system that has to function for our beneficiary to benefit rather than us focusing introspectively as to how do we become a better business because that doesn't actually determine enough our success. So I'm going to relate this back to a, a lot of our clients. And I was leading a little bit with the question there because you understand the many stakeholders involved in getting the outcome that you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. And you talked at the end of the day to your customers or the people that you're raising money and, and that are yep. affected by it. And I find it interesting that salespeople see their role to often sell to a customer or a client and win them, but that's where sales stops. They don't think about the influence that they can have across an entire organization. So we might work with a client who talks about, yeah, product isn't getting this or compliance isn't getting this, risk isn't understanding, marketing doesn't understand. Yeah, we just can't work with them well. As opposed to using these influencing skills and the questioning and understanding so how you can create greater alignment. Uh, and if you have that purpose of a common goal, the outcome that you're looking to achieve, you're much more likely to be able to have those conversations. And so I suspect for you, 
the types of conversations you're having with potential partners, because they're big partners, and, and maybe we could talk about the types of individuals or organisations, obviously not saying names, they're probably the types that you're also got on your board and your advisory committees and things as well. So can you give us a bit of an insight into the, the types of people and, and how you can work with all different types and styles? Yeah, I think to your point about the influences on an individual, be they a customer or, or, or a beneficiary in our case, you know, the longer the relationship is and the more substantial your ambitions are for that customer or beneficiary, the more influences affect whether what they think you're giving them is good or not. An individual transaction exists in that point in time, but a long-term relationship has many other influences around it. So if you don't understand them, your success is affected by things you're not involved in, in actually affecting. So I think that's, that's where we start to think about not just the patient or the medical research institute, but the regulatory bodies, the reimbursement bodies, philanthropists, small startup businesses that are going to take this new science and make it successful enough for a big pharmaceutical company to invest in it. We're looking at the health system and the doctors and whether they're aware of this new breakthrough and the patients, whether they demand it and whether it's reimbursed for them. All those influences for us are important. And that means we need to speak to policymakers in government. We need to speak to health economists. We need to speak to commercial operators in large companies. We need to speak to entrepreneurs and startups. We need to speak to venture capitalists who fund these startups. We need to speak to medical researchers. We need to speak to doctors and we need to speak to diabetic nurses and we need to speak to international luminaries who can bring the best of their knowledge to Australia and so we can share the best of Australian knowledge with them because it's a global challenge. It's a much more complex but also rewarding environment. Certainly from our perspective, we got introduced to your organisation through a client of ours who's also connected to your organisation. So yep. I think a lot of your connections come from a connection to type 1 diabetes. And it wasn't until we started working together that I realised I had connections to type 1 diabetes. So ours was a little bit in reverse. But it is the type of organisation you've built that attracted us to working with you because we felt, one, we could make a difference and genuinely get an impact. But I think, number two, we felt like the money that we invested or the time we invested would be going to somewhere where there's going to be an outcome. Yep. You know, this isn't a feel-good factor. This is genuinely delivering outcomes on behalf of the patients, the researchers, et cetera. So that was certainly really key for us to want to invest our time, money, and energy into this. And I, I will at the end of this, because we'll release it in the month of October while one walks on. So we'll have a conversation about that in a moment on, on how we can get people to, to give towards one walk. Um, <laughs> so can I ask you, did this come naturally or was there a moment when it just clicked for you? Uh, I had a lot to learn, um, all the way from communication and relationship management um, and, and building an understanding of how to be a leader of an organisation of the type we wanted to be, how to think about the role of values in a business. I, I really started from a relatively low base and I'm still grateful for the board of giving a pretty young executive at the time a chance to grow with that organisation. I think back to my first presentations um, to large groups. They were horrid. They were terrible. I came out of consulting, so it was all PowerPoint slides and wordy and wordy and wordy information. And it was just ridiculous. But without those, I wouldn't have been able to get up in front of that group. So that's what got me across that first line. And then you get feedback and everyone says, you know, it was pretty crap and it was very wordy and we didn't watch the slides. Okay. If I get that feedback again, I'm not listening. So let's let's change and learn. And over time, I think that's where the passion element comes in, where it's a lot easier when you have both practice and passion. Uh, if you believe in what you're doing, people tell. And if you don't, people tell. So yes, practice and yes, get feedback. But for me, to sit up and tell a story about something I believe in and something I think can be improved with the involvement of those in an audience 
is something which actually is, yes, it's my job, but it's actually something that connects me personally and professionally in the same moment. It's interesting you say that the PowerPoints and, and we sort of, I think of them sometimes as a bit of a crux that we, we feel like we need them to, to talk to. That was me. Yeah. That was me to start with. And I heard that the comedian Mark Maron talked about that he, uh, he used to sit on stage with a, a cigarette and a glass of whiskey and sit on a stool and he would just talk. And he's quite a dry comedian when he, when he talks, but he's now sober and he can't drink. And he said that the nerves he would get when he first got back up because he didn't know what to do with his hands. Yeah. And I feel like when we remove the, the clicker out of someone's hands, we don't know what to do. And it's something that for me, who can be a little bit anti-PowerPoint because I'd rather prioritise connection uh, and outcome rather than the, the data in that, that sort of moment, I've had to shift via video. And so we have clients who've told us about, a, you know, they said, oh, you don't share enough slides online. And I said, because if I'm sharing my screen, I can't see people. Yeah. And if I'm not seeing people, I'm not connecting. And yeah. I said, so I'd rather give that up. So I'll share a screen and then I'll come back and I'll share it and then I'll come back. Or I use a digital whiteboard uh, just so I can keep that connection going because I believe that it's so strong and it's so critical. Cool. And you ran an event, or an event was being run, I shouldn't say you ran an event in Paddington that I attended again, not through us buying a ticket. We didn't know about it through you. It was through a, a client of mine and a friend who, who brought us along and should say this charity I've ever been to, uh, intimate restaurant, 100 people, uh, was phenomenal. But we had, a, we had a comedian that got up and spoke, Chaz from The Chaser, who let, literally kept the crowd engaged for 90 straight minutes with a, uh, what was it, a karaoke box, like at a, at a microphone. Uh, and then you got up and we spoke afterwards. And I, and I told you that that's one of the, the best speeches that I've ever seen. And we work in this industry. We coach people on how to do it. And I suppose for those out there who deliver presentations, I want to really make this pointed. Your presentations aren't for us to walk away just feeling good. They do drive an action off the back of it as well. So we would describe that as pitching, but it's yep. not a you know, win or lose type of pitch in your case. So if you could give two, three, four tips to people out there who are presenting either to one, get better at it, or two, to in the moment, what they could be doing and thinking, what would they be? My first would be that too often, I think a presenter thinks of what they want to tell people as opposed to putting themselves in the feet, in the shoes of the audience and thinking, where are they? Like at that event, it was later in the evening at the end of a great funny presentation from a comedian and my job and, and our hope for them was to connect that evening back to the purpose and give them a little bit of an incentive to do something at the next stage, which was a fundraising element. Um, a different stage of the evening would have been a different presentation because it would have played a different role. And so understanding where they're at in their particular journey in your involvement, be it in that pitch in a boardroom or be it in that one-on-one -on -one conversation in a cafe or be it at that event is critical. That, that to me is the first thing is start from where they are, not from where you are. Um, the second is um, have a, a story rather than a presentation. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes it much easier for people generally to, to understand things. If, 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 you, if you end up with 15 points delivered verbally or, or even on a slide, no one remembers any of it. But if you have a message that's embedded in a story, it just hits in your brain better. And so for us, it's often a story about progress or it's a story about challenge or it's a story about opportunity. Um, and that resonates, resonates with, with people more easily than something which is very, very, very dry. Um, and I think the, the, the final one is don't overcomplicate things. 
you know, but as, as, as close as you are to your own content, if it's, if it's anywhere beyond simple to you, it's already complicated for them. So yes. keep things really simple and make sure you're very clear on that link between where they are, where you are and where you want them to get, them to, get, get to and do as simple a job as you can of connecting those three things. That's brilliant. And I think the idea of thinking the audience first is the first place we start when we're working on a pitch or a presentation. Mm -hmm. We talk about that idea of a stakeholder analysis and it's always about, you know, what's their drivers? Where are they at? What do they, and we use the terms do, think and feel. What do yes. we want them to do? What do we want them to think? What do we want them to feel? Like basic stuff that, you know, we yep. probably learned 20 years ago, but it's critical because again, we get so focused on what we want to say. The example I was going to give is speaking at those functions as um, we did or at our larger functions. Um, for the ones that I feel I've gone best and you, you know you've done well, I've had people come up and say, can I see, can I get your notes? And there aren't any. There, there's four or five bullet points of here are the, here's the order in which you want to cover things. Um, and that together hangs as a storyline. You know where to start, you know where you want to get to. But beyond that, it's got to come across more naturally. It's got to become a bit more engaging than reading from things. So there is nothing other than the unique conversation combination of what you felt at the moment and what you thought the room needed with the context of a broader framework. I do find it's a lot harder in a Zoom meeting in this sort of environment because I find that even just watching you now, you've got a much better use of your body in the Zoom environment than I've been doing. But normally in a stand-up presentation, I'd be much more using my arms and hands to, to emphasise my delivery. And I've just picked up in this call, I'm not doing that. I've lost an element of what I think is a good part of my comms because of, I'm sitting in a chair. Yes. So I, I, I need to be a bit more aware of the limitations that this sort of environment, and I'm looking at you only, because I know the camera's there. I'm not thinking about a broader connection to a group of people sitting in a room or a, a speaker panel. So there's a, a lot of skills there, I think, that are different in this current world. When I think of you when you're in front of a group and speaking, it's, it's that ability to be able to capture an entire audience. Yeah. Uh, whereas this is, it, it is more challenging. And that's why I talk about removing notes and connecting with people uh, because it, it, it is that little square that we have and it, and it is, you know, we don't have much that we can use and no one's there and no one's there. And, and so it, it is different. And we've spent a lot of time with a lot of really senior execs helping them sort of owning this space, so to speak. And I think I've been probably uh, accused about using too much of my body through these as well. Uh, but it's certainly when we're doing filming for Enable IQ that, that, that I certainly have got to almost bring it back and, and calm it down. But it is interesting for those that are out there, how do you translate what you would do face-to-face -to, -face to this, knowing they're different skills? While yeah. some carry over, they, they certainly are different. I do want to explore one element to it. And, and I think... I want to explore this idea of confidence mm -hmm. because you, you mentioned the idea of a message being simple. And I think that sometimes as people start building into their career, they struggle with simplicity because they fear it doesn't tell people enough about what they know. And we've had one-on-one -on -one conversations where I've been asking you questions to be able to then make it go across the broad organization. And you can talk to this at many, many levels but that night you didn't, mm -hmm. you made it very personalized and you made it really clear and very, very simple, which means we could then all walk away with a really clear message we could then talk to. So I suppose the question's twofold. One is around confidence, how you believe that's played a role and potentially shifted. Uh, if it, why don't we leave it there and then I'll get to the next bit around the, the idea of messages that can be taken on. Okay, well, let me give you the, the flippant answer, which is one I somewhat believe in because it comes from my experience. Confidence is an illusion. Um, if you 
choose to project confidence, people will see that. And if you don't, people won't. Um, and that's purely a, a protective mechanism created earlier in my career where I had no confidence, but I didn't have a choice. So <laughs> I didn't have a choice whether I got up on that stage or I gave that presentation or that pitch or not. So you may as well go in and appear as confident as you possibly can. Um, that, that aside, I think if you then think about what success is in that moment, um, it moves away from can I get them all the messages I want them to understand to how do I need them to, well, you say do, think, feel, but exactly that. What is success in the mind or heart of the person I'm speaking with? If it is feeling that I'm a good leader, it's a different type of message. I can do that. If it's understanding this content area, I can give you three points. If it's believing we're a good organization, I can give you a couple of data points and maybe a couple of case studies. And that's the real, I think, liberator is that you don't have to be confident across all things at all time. Just limit your understanding for that particular moment to the things that are relevant most to that conversation and you'll find confidence around those things because you don't have to carry the whole lot. Yeah. You know, when we, we work on a major pitch that often they just get started into information and we always bring it back to well, what, what's your executive summary? Like what's yeah. the, what are they going to walk away with? And, and we want to yeah. say that up front and we then want to reiterate those messages. And uh, we tend to find product or sector experts, real technical experts find that quite challenging is just to deliver those three things. Uh, but it's so critical because it's that the more simple it is, the easier it is for someone to walk away and stick with them. And that's what we want. We want if there's you know, four organisations pitching or presenting, why are they going to remember you? Yeah. Uh, one is because it's relevant to them and it might be original and that you talk to the impact, but it's also going to be the fact you can walk away and remember what they said and, and actually remember what the, the, the moment was, the impact was, that outcome, the so what we often refer to it. It is, but let's let's be let's be clear. Simple is harder, um, because your point there about what do they want to rec- remember you from, as you have three or four other pitches alongside you. If you if you just think about what you want to tell them, all you've got to know is your stuff. If you think about how you want to be remembered, which is the real value add, you've got to know everybody else's stuff, and you've got to work out how you fit and what your proposition is, and which areas are most differentiated and will be valued by the customer. That's a tough thing to do to then get to the two or three points that deliver on that brief. Yes. Okay. I like that. I really like it. And, and I think it was Mark Twain said I was going to write a short story but <laughs> at the time. And, and I think it yes. it is much harder to deliver something in one slide or one point than it is 60 slides, like by telling yes. the whole story. I want to come back to confidence. It reminded me of a, a new comedian I saw get up and deliver in front of these very experienced comedians. And they said, you're so calm. And he says, I've never been this scared in my life. And he says, but we're all scared up on stage. It's just that ability to be able to not show it and get comfortable in being uncomfortable. And I think for for newer people or people getting into it for the first time, it's that understanding that it's, it's, you could be doing it for 20 years and still be uncomfortable. But the difference is you're comfortable in that moment to still be able to get that expertise right. I think that's a really important um, balance or distinction or dichotomy, that, that, that comfort with discomfort, not expecting the discomfort to go away. Um, a, another similar situation that I describe is, um, you know, in a leadership position, you've got to be happy with what you do but never satisfied. You can't be second-guessing yourself such that you aren't able to reward yourself some sense personally for doing some stuff, but never can you believe your own BS either. You, you cannot believe that you are. So you've got to be both happy and never satisfied. And similarly, um, in, in, in getting out and presenting in front of others, you want to take on feedback, but nor do you, as soon as you start believing people when they tell you you're really good, you equally have to believe everyone who tells you you're not worth the, 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 the money you're printed on. So yes. 
it, it's it's some sense of internal comfort with that with that 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 um, imbalance between comfort and discomfort is actually really a powerful coping mechanism, and I think a, a success predictor. So I want to make this shift now and, and, and we can finish on this is, a, is around the idea of sales. And I know that sometimes in the, the not-for-profit sector, sales is thought of as a dirty word uh, and it can be used as fundraising and, and different terms out there. But in essence, you are driving people to donate money. Yeah. And so do you have a philosophy on sales? Do you have a, a way of thinking on this because you've raised a significant amount of money over the years and, and how does that you know, equate? Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things is money is, money is the means, not the end. Um, yeah. Uh, and the proposal or, or, or the transaction is the last step, not the first step. So we have to be really clear as to the, the why and the how. And what is it we're ultimately trying to deliver and what will the actions we take do to deliver that? So then give us the support to take those actions. And I think we, we often invert it and start with how much money we want so we can do stuff. Tell the story. Like if, I, if you're a parent of a child affected by type 1 diabetes and I say, you had another sleepless night last night because you didn't know what your child's blood sugar levels were going to be after that exercise they did in the evening. What if I could help you with a, a device that let you sleep through the night and gave you the comfort that your son or daughter's health was never going to be at risk from fluctuations you weren't awake to address? Is that important to you? I mean, I mean, what, what is, okay, it's going to cost this much money. It's going to take this many years. It's going to be this research. I, I don't care. How many reasons? I don't care. You, you, that, that's, that's what matters. If we start the other way around, we might end up with the same content, but you don't get the same engagement. Similarly, in, in talking about proposals, I, I, I'm continually frustrated by someone who brings me a proposal and says, I think we've got it done. I now want to go and show it to the customer. Yep. It's like, no, go and have five conversations, find out what they want, agree it in verbally, and then go and write the proposal that just is a transaction completion tool. It's not a sales tool. The sale, selling is done much more personally than is able to be done. The paper is an aid to end it, not to start it. We've got an exceptionally high conversion rate. And yeah. it's not because we're the greatest salespeople in the world. It's because we don't put a proposal in front of anyone yeah. uh, unless we've pretty much agreed uh, before getting there. And this idea of writing it verbally, and I think that sometimes, again, like PowerPoint slides, a proposal can be a crux for a salesperson. It's the idea of, okay, well, I've done my job. I can't control the, the rest of it, as opposed to actually a proposal should be built with them based on their needs. What do they want? Incorporating their language that you're using in there. And a proposal should equal a sale most of the time. Agree, agree. And now without casting any aspersions on an able SE, because this is not you, but taking that approach that we've both described, you can actually be more persuasive and less prepared <laughs> because you're allowed to then learn from the customer in the process of the conversation and adjust what you think the proposal should look like and deliver that to them verbally. Whereas if you come up beforehand with a pre-printed document, you've got to get everything right or they'll find one out of 10 points they don't want yep. and that'll be enough to strike you off the list. Yep. You can avoid that risk if you go in with a bit more fluidity into a conversation. And I think that, you know, we've been doing this and, and hopefully it came across with yourselves is, is we almost just want to get the agreement that we're happy to work together in principle and yep. there's certain outcomes that we want to achieve and the rest we can work out. You know, you know what you're doing. You know what you want to achieve. If you believe we can help you get there, then that's probably enough. And I, and I think that by putting a proposal out, especially early, we're getting to a yes or a no really quickly. Yeah. And I don't think that, that we're always there yet in the buying cycle or the sales cycle to be yeah. at yes or no. Um, yeah. We may be at the cycle of, yeah, I'm comfortable to talk more to you. Yeah. Or, Mike, I like you. I think I like what your organization's doing. I'd like to talk more about how I could potentially help. 
It doesn't mean that they're ready to suddenly sign a check for $100,000 or a million dollars, but it means they're closer than they were, you know, a week ago or a month ago. And that means you can work with different customers with different sales cycles and there are different points of their journey and you don't, you don't prejudice any one relationship by trying to make them all look the same with the same proposal. And we got that out of, out of our conversations with you. I think there was a, a genuine interest to understand our business first, a genuine ability to then to show how that value could be delivered. And then we just had to work through the details of what came first and what the actual package looked like. And that's really worked terrifically, terrifically well. So I think that approach that you've exhibited in how you've done your business is, is been very, very well rewarded, rewarding for us. Well, we appreciate it. And, you know, we just want the outcome. And so we, we don't want to run a training session on closing because that's what it said we had to do on that date when closing has nothing to do with what's going to impact you or the, the organization. And, and I think that, you know, it, as in most organizations, but certainly in yours, the answers are already there. It's yes. just a matter of getting it spread across the, the broader yeah. group and, and making sure that everyone can talk to it. And, and that, you know, I found anyway that, that it just gives tends to give people more confidence because they know it's already working and they, they can just put, put it out there. So that that idea of different buying cycles and selling cycles. Now, I'm, I'm mindful I've taken up a lot of your time. I'm, I'm keen to just quickly find out you've been an awarded, you've been awarded an OAM and I'm curious on, you know, what drove and what led to that. Uh, look, uh, it's a it's a terrific honour. Um, it's one that you don't get to see the machinations of because some kind peers or colleagues nominate you for it. Um, but the the way it was described was for contribution to diabetes research. So if I look back and you know being a long time in the sector, you've got to become a natural fan for CEO tenure because otherwise you're pointing your pointing yourself in the wrong direction. But you do ask, you do reflect: Have I been slow? Like, should I have got this done in ten years? Have we have we done enough? Hopefully, this is just a small signal that we're on the right track. And um, I'm very appreciative of being in an organisation with a board and staff and colleagues and volunteers that have let me do a job that's ended up with that recognition. But again, it's it's just a it's just something I'm very grateful for. But you get, don't get carried away. It's, it's a large organisation that I've been happy enough to lead. And so I think, you know, again, for the people that are watching, we call this a masterclass because I truly believe that you, you've certainly in that form of mastery when it comes to pitching and presentations in raising money, being in sales, but also an organization that culturally has that ability to keep learning and getting better when it comes to that. And, and so I think that, you know, for those that are watching this, please look at the similarities or what you can start bringing into your organization that you're currently seeing. And yeah, I'm just going to ask you to hope you enjoyed it and, and give. Thanks, Johnny. 